everyone. You are listening to Diverse Roots, a podcast all about the unique career journeys in science and medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Cassie Briggs, and in each episode, I'm joined by a successful professional who shares their career journey, lessons learned, and advice for aspiring scientists like yourself. So whether you're on your commute, working out, or doing some chores, prepare to be inspired. Dr. J.J. Apodaca is a conservation geneticist and founder of Tangled Bank Conservation, serving to protect threatened and endangered species across the world. As a leader in amphibian and reptile conservation for over a decade, he is also the current executive director for the Amphibian and Reptile Conservancy. He's brought in millions of dollars of conservation funding and has worked with some of the biggest names in conservation, including San Diego Zoo, the Nature Conservancy, and the World Wildlife Fund. Despite his success, JJ is incredibly humble and transparent about his career journey. He shares how a book, staying after class to talk to his TA, and a conference field trip led him to where he is today. We discuss whether or not to get a master's first or go straight into a PhD, how to get conservation agencies to listen to you as an academic researcher, and how to make an unheard of leap out of academia and into founding your own conservation business. I hope you're ready for the wealth of insight that's about to hit your ears. Here we go. Hello, JJ. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you on today. Hey, Cassie. Thanks. Excited to be here. All right. So before we jump into the questions, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself, maybe what you do professionally and anything about your personal life you want to share? Sure. Yeah. What I do professionally is always a little bit of a difficult question for me to answer because it's so broad and most people don't understand it. In fact, my mom used to tell people I got a PhD in frogs, <laughs> but I'm, I, I like to kind of just generally describe myself as a conservation biologist and someone who's deeply interested and passionate about conservation and you know what that means for me career-wise, I guess we'll talk more about through this episode, but in general, that's sort of always what I'm working towards is wildlife and habitat conservation. I also tend to focus on herpetology, herps, amphibians, and reptiles, but not exclusively. I have a lot of projects on mammals and fish and even plants and other cool stuff like that. And I also tend to work a lot as a geneticist. Personally, I live in Asheville, North Carolina and the beautiful mountains of Western North Carolina and just spend a lot of time trying to enjoy this area, hiking with my family and, you know, flipping rocks for salamanders and that kind of thing. Living the dream. So for the listeners that aren't aware, I'm also a fellow herpetologist, but in a very limited sense, I really only study a turtle. So (laughs) I don't dabble too much into the amphibian world, but lots of my colleagues did. And so that's actually how JJ and I got to know each other is through the research that we did. But before we jump into that stuff, let's go back in time to when you were just growing up. Do you remember what you first wanted to be? I think part of the problem was that I never really wanted to be anything growing up that I can remember anyway, besides like occasional childhood things of wanting to be a ninja or a trash man or something like that. But yeah, it really wasn't until college that I had any idea what I was going to (laughs) be. I certainly wasn't one of these people who knew 
was going to be a doctor or a lawyer from age five or anything like that. So yeah, it took me a while. And I think, you know, in reality, I think that's a really good thing, you know, maybe not as a kid, but as you get older to not tie yourself to any one, you know, certain path and associate your identity with kind of an end point in, in a career. What an honest answer. And we do have a lot of high school listeners who just, I can feel the weight coming off their shoulders as they listen to that answer. And I, <laughs> you're so right. You don't need to know your whole rest of your life at this point. And I think it's an exciting chapter and college is an additional period of time where you can continue exploring. And tell us a little bit more about your college experience and what got you interested in this field. So I was an undergrad at the University of South Florida in Tampa, which if I'm being honest, I had never visited the campus before I <laughs> went to orientation. I kind of only applied a few places. So I always encourage everybody to apply and visit and really do your research because it's important. But I got lucky and I really liked the University of South Florida. And I just spent some time being interested in taking a bunch of classes that I looked really cool in the book and <laughs> and spent some time. I had some ideas that maybe I wanted to be an anthropologist or a historian. And, and so I was taking classes in those. And then by chance, uh, somebody gave me a book, a random book called uh, Appointments at the End of the World, which was by a wildlife veterinarian that worked for the Wildlife Conservation Society. It was a great book. It hit me at exactly the right time. And it, it tied together a lot of the parts of my life that I was like, whoa, this is really an amazing job and what I would love to do. And at that point, I guess I was maybe halfway through my sophomore year. And so I went in, I talked to the biology department, I became pre-vet. I went and got a job as a vet tech and, and spent a number of years as a vet tech. And so started heading down that path. And once I was working as a vet tech, and really getting into the world of veterinary medicine, I, I realized that isn't actually what I <laughs> really wanted to be doing. I loved it and I loved parts of that, but I got lucky enough as I was going through that, that I had a lab TA and she happened to work on gopher tortoises and I'd grown up catching things and, and you know, was always obsessed with snakes and turtles and frogs and and so I, I remember her telling us in lab that she did research on gopher tortoises and, and I stayed afterwards and I made her explain it to me a few times that you could make a living working with turtles and tortoises <laughs> and doing research. So yeah, so that was the lucky break in my life. And then I started doing undergrad research at USF in the lab of Dr. Henry Mashensky. I got really lucky. And, you know, that's another thing I always encourage folks to do is to get involved in research and move around in that a lot and talk to the people who've done it. So that was my undergrad experience and finished up and knew that's what I wanted to do. And so I actually skipped a master's and went straight into a PhD program at the University of Alabama and started my career from there. Can I ask a little bit about that decision? I get asked all the time, should I go for a master's and then a PhD or straight to a PhD? So I'd love to hear your perspective on that. Yeah, I always, with very few exceptions, so I guess I shouldn't say always, but suggest that people do a master's. I wanted to get in and get things done, and I had some research background. But even then, I essentially messed around and tried to find projects for a couple of years. So I essentially did a master's without getting a master's. <laughs> and, you know, it's really hard as an undergrad to 
have any idea what is going on in the field. And so I always suggest, you know, get a master's. It lets you kind of explore around, hear what's going on around you, and, and also really find the field and the subfield that you're passionate about, you know, because it's not always going to be the field you think you're interested in from undergrad. And there's so many little niches in the world for you to find. And so it's impossible to know before you go into it. The other thing that I really like about a master's for a lot of folks is that a PhD is a really intimate relationship with your advisor. You know, you've got to work with that person really closely and at least in the best cases. And it's hard when you're applying from afar to, to know exactly what kind of lab you're going into and that sort of stuff. And so a master's is a nice way to to have like, you know, I almost compare it like a clean breakup, you know, like if you don't like who you're working with, <laughs> you can, you have an excuse to leave after your master's, whereas the PhD, it's not that simple. Uh, and then if you do really like who you're working with, you know, oftentimes you can just stay and, and complete a PhD in the same lab as a master's, you know, but that's usually my advice. Yeah. I mean, great advice. And I'm curious, you shared that for your undergrad, you didn't apply very many places or visit. You just got lucky and liked where you ended up. Did your strategy change as you applied to PhD programs? Yeah, I didn't apply far and wide, but I certainly talked to a lot more people and looked into a lot more programs. And I think one of the reasons that I didn't apply further and wider was that my advisor that I did find, who was Dr. Leslie Rissler, as soon as I interviewed with her and, and saw her lab, I knew that that's where I wanted to go. And that's, <laughs> that's the work that I wanted to be doing. It was a perfect fit for what I thought I wanted to be doing. And personality-wise, we got along great. I certainly looked and emailed with a lot more professors going into grad school than I did for undergrad. Yeah, and it's so interesting that you share that. It's almost like a feeling like a gut feeling. You are in the presence of that advisor in that lab and you're like, yeah, this is it. And I remember having the same feeling. Well, I'll give some preface to the story. So I crazily applied to 11 different PhD programs. I did extensive research on who was doing cool stuff that I wanted to work with all over the country. And I got into all the programs and visited all the programs. And Tennessee was my last visit. And at that point, I was just going because they already paid for it. And it wasn't really on my list. And I went and no joke, totally sold. And obviously, that's where I ended up going. And it was a feeling. It just felt unlike any other place that I visited, that I was meant to be there doing the research that I ended up doing there. So yeah, it goes to show you do your homework and it pays dividends. All right. So JJ, you mentioned finding a PhD program you were really excited about. So can you tell us a little bit more about your experience there? So I started very much on the sort of pure evolutionary side of research and I thought that that's the direction I was going to go a year or so in, realized that I was really attracted to the, the applied conservation side of things. I felt really strange, I guess, or bad about doing pure research on amphibians specifically is what I was starting with. And at the same time, watching, you know, 50 to 60% of them declining rapidly and, and going extinct. And so I, I got 
much more motivated to do the conservation side of things. And so I guess about two years in, I got pretty lucky in a, at a meeting and went on a field trip and actually went out to this site for an endangered species or technically a threatened species under the Endangered Species Act, uh, the Red Hill Salamander. And just started talking to some folks that worked on it. And specifically one person, Jim Godwin, helped me out a lot and started talking to him. And it turned out that species really needed a lot of the things that I was interested in, in terms of genetic analysis and, <laughs> and some more surveys and that kind of stuff. And so Jim and I wrote a state wildlife grant and ended up getting it. And that kind of shaped the rest of my time in grad school and, and research. And, and it was, like I said, really great because it was very applied and I got to experience a huge variety of both research techniques and sides of things, talking to landowners and the state and Fish and Wildlife Service, and as well as thinking about and, and working on uh, academic grant writing and paper writing and that kind of thing. That's such a great way to find a research project. And anybody looking to do applied research in that way, I strongly encourage to follow the footsteps of JJ and figure out what's going on out on the ground and with government agencies, nonprofits, other organizations. And then, you know, just seeing what's needed and how you can use your skill sets to help. And that's exactly how I did it for my PhD too. I didn't have a set project in mind. I just knew I wanted to apply genetics to help a species, specifically interested in translocations, reintroductions, and asked around. And it turned out uh, Zoo Knoxville had been doing a reintroduction program for bog turtles. And I was like, perfect, this will be great. And I can help them along. And I mean, it's been years what a great way to find research that's really impactful. Yeah, it's really funny. I, I have a lot of, since I do so much applied research, I have a lot of folks ask me, you know, sort of like, well, how do you get agencies to listen to you and to take your research seriously and what you're saying? And, and we really struggle with that. And, and then that's kind of always what I go back to. I'm like, well, did you ask them what they needed? And the answer is usually no. It's usually people do research and then they go to the agencies and they say, Hey, like you should really consider this uh, rather than the other way around going to the agencies or the people on the ground and saying, Hey, what are you struggling with? What do you need to know? And, and then designing research questions and projects around that. Absolutely. So after your PhD, what did it look like for you as you hit the job market? What were you looking to do with your degree? I had been pretty convinced really since undergrad that I was going to go into academia and I was going to be a professor and, and figured that's where I would spend my, my whole career as, as a professor. And then I would grow my beard out big and long and white and, and a cranky old professor somewhere. And so <laughs> that's the kind of uh, path I took. I had gotten to know my postdoc advisor, Dr. Joe Travis. He was on my committee and so before I graduated, started talking to him and arranged a, a postdoc with him. And he was a great guy and, and had some room in his lab. And for those of you that aren't aware, uh, if you're going to go into academia, if you're going to go get any 
I would say almost any academic position now, but certainly at any larger school, like you have to do a postdoc. And so that's what I did. I went and spent two years at Florida State University uh, with Joe and, and did a postdoc. That time brings a lot of anxiety to people because you are looking for jobs and you don't have anything long-term stable or anything like that. But on the other hand, it's really like a gift of a time. It's like you're you're just doing research and <laughs> and you're, you know, helping out projects and you're continuing to learn. And yeah, I, I just loved that period. But nonetheless, you can't stay there forever, at least in most cases. And so about two years in, you know, I was kind of looking over job boards. I hadn't really started considering applying very heavily because, you know, we were happy where we were at and, you know, I was considering the right jobs, but my wife and I had decided that one of the areas we'd really love to be was, was in the Western North Carolina mountains and in Asheville specifically. And so during that time, I saw two jobs come up on the job board that were of interest, one at a small college and one at, at a, a field station, Highlands Biological Field Station, and applied to both those, got interviews at both of them. Field station ended up going another way, but I got the first job that I <laughs> interviewed for, which if anybody is listening to this and has gone through the academic job search now hates me because oftentimes you're applying to 50 to 100 jobs. And so I just got incredibly lucky, had the right fit for me and my skill set and, you know, what they were looking for and, yeah, and started, started my career as an academic. So did you have any insight about what it was in your resume and experiences or your interview that sold them that JJ was the person for the job? You know, I don't really know. I think having talked to them afterwards, obviously, and, and I think in general, you know, now knowing more about hiring and interviews and that sort of stuff. I think when people are applying for so many positions or, you know, whether that's jobs or grad schools or colleges or whatever, it becomes a little more obvious, right? And so for me, I was really passionate about this one place. I thought I was a great fit and I, I wrote why and I, I you know, wrote the cover letter in a, in a strong manner. And when I showed up to interview, it was obvious that that's where I wanted to be. And, and so I think a lot of those are are important. I think if you're casting your net really wide, it becomes apparent to those who are interviewing you or looking through application materials that that's what you're doing is looking for a job and not not somewhere to really fit in and, and be a part of the community. Well said. You could be a career coach with that type of advice. I love it. So <laughs> this is one thing that I talk with my clients about all the time, about the different strategy of cast your net wide, apply to as many jobs as possible with the same resume, basically the same cover letter with a few different sentences, or you are a little more selective in what you apply for and really go deep and in your cover letter, even customizing your resume in a way that shouts, mm -hmm. this is the value I can bring your organization or your, your institution. And so clearly that was well-received from you in looking at your application packet and being in that interview. I'm just curious, what did the interview process look like for you? So typically in those academic jobs, you either have to do a research talk, a teaching demo. So what were the requirements for that? Yeah, I had to do a research talk that was in a class. So the college I was applying to was very teaching focused. So they brought me into a class. If you're 
applying in an R1 or, or something like that, a bigger place, you usually give a research talk that's kind of geared more towards the grad students and the and the faculty. But this was to a bunch of 18 to 22 year olds <laughs> and explaining my research. And then I also, you know, these are exhaustive interviews in the academic process. It's a, a day or two, often two, where you're interviewing, you know, constantly and you're doing a couple of these things. So in addition to the research talk, they also had me teach a class, which they didn't give me the topic until two or three days before the interview. <laughs> and I didn't get to choose, you know, the current conservation biology professor at the time just said, oh, well, you know, next time in class, I'm going to be covering XC2 conservation. So you teach that. And so I had <laughs> no experience with XC2 conservation. And so I had to write a, a talk on that and, you know, somehow make that convincing. Luckily, I had had some research already where I was, you know, working on genetics for XC2 conservation projects. And so I was able to, you know, lay the foundations and and then also tie in my own research that uh, made it a little more interesting. But yeah, that was the experience is, you know, a research talk, a, a teaching talk, and then just constant meetings and every other point from the faculty to deans to students and, and that sort of stuff. So it's a, it's a pretty exhaustive process, exhausting process. I couldn't agree more. I think my whole interview process for Michigan State was a day and a half, <laughs> two days. And for me, it wasn't a research heavy position. It was teaching heavy. And so I just had to do a teaching demo. And fortunately, they gave me the topic way ahead of time. What's interesting, though, for me is, I mean, I classify myself as a conservation geneticist and behavioral ecologist. And my topic was to teach the electron transport chain. So more cellular biology, which was great because it really, you know, pushed me to show them, yeah, I can teach the full intro curriculum, which is really what they were looking for. So I obviously know where you are now and what you're doing. So how did you decide academia might not be the best fit for you professionally? And what did you decide to shift to? While I was teaching and, and working in academia, I, I continued to really be involved in conservation and was really fortunate in that I had, had made a lot of connections and was building a lot of research projects and doing a lot of work for agencies and nonprofits and, and that sort of stuff on the conservation side. And, you know, typically in a lot of academic institutions, that work would go to the grad students and, you know, you'd keep building your lab. But I didn't have grad students. And so I had, I had some undergrads and there, there are a few great ones and they were helping out with that research. But ultimately, about five years in, I got to the point where I was bringing in so many conservation projects that I really had to make a decision. And initially, I decided maybe I was going to bring in a postdoc to help with all that work and then got to thinking about it more and, and talking to some folks there and ultimately decided that I didn't really want to bring in a postdoc to do all the things that I wanted to do and <laughs> all the conservation work and all the, those projects and, you know, trying to make a difference in wildlife conservation. And just so that I could keep doing the things that I didn't really want to do. I loved parts of the job in academia. I loved teaching and mentoring and that kind of thing. But I, I didn't so much love a lot of the like freshman advising and, and going to faculty meetings and 
and teaching intro classes and those sorts of things. You know, that just wasn't really how I saw my career going. And so made the decision in 2017 to leave academia and do something rather unheard of, which is start an independent company that does conservation genetics work and apply conservation field work and serves a lot of the federal agencies and state agencies and nonprofits looking to do conservation activities. And so, yeah, left and started Tangle Bank Conservation and still running it today. Uh, we've got a ton of projects and uh, it's really, really exciting. At the same time, as as I mentioned, I was, uh, you know, am and <laughs> have always been really interested in herpetological conservation and was so was staying pretty involved with that and had an opportunity to sort of initially join the amphibian reptile conservancy as a volunteer which in 2019 turned into me coming on uh, halftime as a director of conservation and science and then last year they came to me and wanted me to take over as the executive director and so so that's how I got to where I am today, I, running two conservation organizations and and doing lots and lots of, of applied projects. Well, usually my next question is telling us how you discovered your current position and what the application and hiring process was, but mute point because you essentially hired yourself and you created your own company. And so you're right. This is pretty much unheard of. And one of the big reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast to talk about an option very few people think about or consider. So if you had some, let's say, student or mentee that was interested in making a similar shift, are there maybe two or three key pieces of advice you'd share with them about starting your own business like this? Sure. I mean, you know, that could be its own podcast in itself. <laughs> but I, I think in general, you know, I mean, I was fortunate enough to have a lot of things going into it. And so I think for me, that was key. So it's it's sort of if you think this is something you're interested in, you know, plan way ahead and start, you know, kind of compiling those before you make a jump out on your own and then can't pay rent or something like that. So I think that's a, a big key point of it. And then that also helps you to realize if your business or your, your career is going to be feasible. You know, if you have never gotten research grants or contracts and all of a sudden you jump out and you start a business, it's probably not going to go very well. So, you know, so thinking ahead and sort of doing it with a, a soft landing place and getting those connections and contracts and that sort of stuff on a smaller scale can help you when you do finally take the leap. The other thing that really helped Tangle Bank as a company was just having a variety of skills and things that we do. So, you know, especially in the beginning, we were doing lots of field surveys and restoration projects and and genetics and GIS projects of so spatial computer modeling stuff. And so, you know, that variety, at least for the first couple of years, really carried us through because there would be times when the genetics projects would dry up, but fortunately at the same time we had field projects or, you know, vice versa or, or something like that. So just having a variety of things that you can kind of use to uh, feed into your business. And then as you, as you go on, you know, you might sort of thin some of those out and focus a little bit bigger, 
but at least initially it's really nice to have that variation. Absolutely. And so can you tell us a little bit more about your role? And I know you kind of have two roles going on, one within your business and one as the executive Mm -hmm. director. So can you share with us a little bit about what those roles entail? Sure. I mean, I think for both the roles, I mean, I still get to get out in the field occasionally and that sort of stuff. But but largely what my roles are now are sort of having a vision and a direction and helping us get there. So picturing what we need to be doing and talking to partners and realizing where there's needs and holes and applying for grants. And, you know, I have a lot of meetings on a daily basis uh, just to keep all those different projects going and, and pushing and, and talking to the people that that's going to make that happen, you know, might help provide funding or projects or anything like that. And so, yeah, you know, that's for both of my positions now, it's a lot of, of that, of getting the ball rolling and visioning. It's also a lot of administrative work, which I never thought I would be doing and a lot of meetings and And then obviously now directing a lot of people, managing and, you know, helping make sure that they're getting the things that they need to be successful in whatever project that they're doing for either organization. Awesome. So what do you love about what you're doing now? What stands out to you? Easily the biggest thing that I love is that I've always wanted to make a pretty big difference in conservation. I've been very motivated by that side of things. And I'm lucky enough to be in a position now where I can make that happen. We can, you know, we're getting very large conservation projects running on the ground and continuing on. And, you know, we're talking about lots of wetlands restored, wetlands rebuilt, uh, invasive species removed, key decisions for endangered species being made from our genetic data, and that kind of thing. And so helping these big applied conservation projects get running and moving forward is really, you know, what I love. That's what drives me and and helps me, you know, get up in the morning and, and keep doing it. And this is one of those things that I don't know if you ever had to take one of the personality or career matching tests in high school. This is what they can't capture is like your deepest values, like the things that are important to you in your yeah. soul. Because I think that's what makes your career so fulfilling. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's really important. And I, and I think a lot about this and I have over the years. I've tried to provide advice for a lot of people, in, in the, at least in the biological field. And, and there's a lot of people out there who think that they want to be a field tech for their entire career. And what I generally try to tell people is that Everybody loves being in the field. Everybody loves, you know, the joy of catching a turtle or, or like, you know, just spending time outside. And so for you personally, what you need to do is find the balance between your enjoyment and your fulfillment. And so for some people, that balance is very much on the enjoyment side and they need to love that every day. Uh, and they don't need very much fulfillment at a larger level. And, and, you know, that works great for a lot of the, you know, very field heavy jobs. And then on the other end of that is a lot of fulfillment. You're getting a lot of joy from making a bigger impact and finding that level of fulfillment. And and of course, there's all sorts of gray area in between those two. And so I think that's really important for people to consider with a career is figuring out that balance between enjoyment and fulfillment and, and what you really want and need. 
I think you said it perfectly. I don't even have to add anything to that. So I'll just transition to say, despite how enjoyable or fulfilling a job may be, every job has its downsides, right? So is there any aspect of what you do that maybe is a little less appealing than the other things you do? Oh, God, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I think every job has that, right? In general, the things that I that I dislike the most are like sort of administrative-like tasks. And just because that doesn't really fit my personality all that well, uh, more and more, you know, I have people that I can outsource a lot of that to. But, you know, there's sometimes that you just kind of have to do those administrative type tasks, bookkeeping or making invoices or, <laughs> you know, whatever that is. And and so that that is really something I don't really uh, love and appreciate. But again, it's it's a small, small portion. And then, yeah, I, I think that's probably the, the biggest one. All right. So this is a fun one. Knowing what you know now about what you need on a day-to-day basis, what class would you say was the most influential or valuable back in college or grad school? Mm, That's tough. (laughs) You know, I mean, I think I don't tend to think of like individual classes as being, remember them being incredibly valuable as much as like the entire learning process and like struggling and overcoming and, and learning those things. I mean, there's certainly some classes like population ecology or evolution that, that played such a huge role in my career that I use a lot. I think certainly the idea of calculus and statistics is incredibly important in our field. And, and I don't mean that you have to be a math wizard or fluent in calculus or statistics. I certainly am not, but at least having a general understanding of those fields and is much more important actually than the details of it to be able to not be intimidated by the math when it comes up and and to understand it. And then I think so much of what we do is human-based, whether it's working with other conservationists or landowners or, or anything like that. And so, you know, some basic psychology courses were really, really valuable for me and just learning what motivates people, how to talk to people, communication, that kind of stuff. It's so interesting that you mentioned psychology because this is one thing I talk to people about all the time. The two classes that I regret not taking were psychology and photography. Because as a student, you'd never think in conservation, I'm working with animals, I want to save the world one species at a time. But you don't think about all the stakeholders involved in that conversation and how different their perspectives are. And psychology really could have served me well in helping navigate those relationships. And then so much of what we do, we need to communicate our science. And I think in the case of herpetology, a lot of times people think of snakes, right? And, you know, there's mixed feelings that people generally have about snakes, but photography can capture an emotion and a feeling in a way that can convert that negative association of snakes with something positive and beautiful. And so that's another class I really wish I had to better communicate more of the emotion and feeling associated with conservation. And maybe that ties into some of the psychology and how to convey what we do to the average day person. Yeah, I love that. I often tell people I'm the one herpetologist who 
is a terrible photographer and most of mine happens on my phone. So, <laughs> so I'm with you. I wish I, I had taken photography as well, but, and you know, I mean, that you and I emailed back and forth about books, but there's a lot of great sort of books and on the psychology and communication side out there as well that, that people can dive into for that side of things. Absolutely. And we'll make sure to share those in the show notes as well. In addition to that, can you think of maybe one or two technical skills that have been really useful? Or, I mean, you've hired some people on within your organization. What kind of things do you look for in their resumes? Yeah, I mean, I think coding is one that's not going anywhere and is incredibly valuable and uh, is a lot like math. Like if you, you don't have to be intimidated by it and you don't have to know everything, but if, if you can get around in it and, and spend a little time learning, it is just incredibly valuable no matter what you do. And then as somebody who's done a lot of work in GIS, the you know, spatial software. I think that's another thing that people get really intimidated by, but that there's just tons of opportunities in making maps and in doing those spatial analyses. And so much of what we do is spatial, that at least having an idea of how to work with that on a computer and, and how to how to run those analyses is incredibly valuable. And it actually helps you think more spatially as well, which is very useful. Yeah. I was an advisor for the environmental major within our college. And those are two of the things, well, and statistics. So statistics coding and ArcMap or GIS, having some experience in those worlds are certainly helpful. Yeah. Statistics is, is huge too. And like I said, you don't have to be a, a wizard in it, but understanding the, the basis of it, understanding, because they're all really, it's intimidating. And so people think it's, it's fancy math or statistics is incredibly simple at its base level. And so, so just understanding what's going on at the base level is helps you identify a lot of BS out there and a lot and understand patterns in ways that other folks don't. Absolutely. And you don't necessarily have to go to the math department for statistics. A lot of the bigger schools and bigger programs, right? They have statistics for biologists or statistics for life sciences or medicine or whatever it is. And so those can be much more understandable because it's much more applicable to the data sets you'd be using. So am I correct in assuming that you didn't have a quote unquote career coach through your career thus far? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I did not. <laughs> okay. Not unusual. It's one of those yeah. things that's becoming more and more popular recently. So I'm curious, what difference do you think having a science career coach might have had in your career journey or the feelings and emotions of your experience? I mean, I, I think, well, let me just start by saying, I think what you're doing is is awesome. And I think that trend is is really needed. And, and for me, not that I would have chosen a different route, but myself and, and so many other folks that I know from the field, sort of like the academic route was all that we knew. And, you know, the old saying that like academics want to create more academics and uh, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it would have been really amazing. And I think is for, for a lot of folks now really amazing to be able to see a broader view of the, of the careers that are out there and, and the opportunities that are out there and, and how you might prepare for those and, and also how you might prepare to not follow one route. And I think that's really important is to, 
is to build yourself and your career aspirations and, and design so that you're not stuck in a single route because you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know how you're going to change. You don't know what opportunities might present themselves. And so, yeah, you know, I think that would have been just incredibly valuable in itself. Not to get all nerdy, but as you were talking, I'm picturing a phylogenetic tree where bifurcating points, right? So throughout your career journey, you have choices, maybe two, maybe multiple. And to get to different endpoints or even the same endpoint, maybe some horizontal gene transfer in your tree, maybe you get to a point where the journey may have been different to get to that point, but the journey was just right for you. And I think that's the thing that people don't always consider is those journey decisions are just as important as that final destination because you're not just a professional, you're a person. And so I think thinking about your personal goals and your professional goals, you need to be open to those shifts in direction along the way. Absolutely. Yeah. Especially these days, like everything, careers and choices are so much more customizable and yeah, being able to make those choices and have somebody to help guide you through those choices and prepare for that. That's, I think I love that. I love that image of, of a phylogenetic tree of career choices. Maybe I should create a diagram of that for my next workshop. I feel inspired. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so JJ, yeah. as we wrap up here, I want to give you the last word. Do you have any last words of advice for our listeners, which again, are students and early career professionals who may be considering this type of job, maybe starting their own business, maybe a job working for the government in conservation, any advice for them? I think it's so incredibly important to just be passionate about what you're doing. And there's not a single person that I know that has an incredible passion, at least in this field for conservation, you know, whether it's for a certain taxa or for a certain question or, or whatever it might be that doesn't have a job and isn't in a, in a good career position. And, and the folks that I do know that struggle, you know, kind of followed a, a set path, sort of followed like what you're supposed to do, go to grad school and then continue on. And, you know, so find that passion and explore all around. Like as we talked about, there's a whole bunch of different classes and, and different things that you wouldn't consider taking that, that are important. So just be curious and, and open to all those sorts of things, communications and psychology and self-improvement and whatever all those things might be. But, but ultimately, yeah, it's, you know, finding something that you're passionate about that's going to drive you forward and make you happy, but also fulfilled. Ah, thank you so much, JJ. What a great way to end our episode today. If you want to hear more from JJ, you can. Just go to patreon.com slash diverse roots and become a patron for this podcast. Doing so will get you access to the extended video interview, additional resources, and an opportunity to set up an informational interview with JJ. In the extended interview, JJ reveals the secret to becoming more productive, the number one way to promote yourself in the field of conservation, and why classifying yourself as, quote, not good at math is scientifically inaccurate. I love how JJ wrapped up this episode. Be open, be curious. Are you dead set on a specific career path and missing out on opportunities that would bring you career fulfillment? 
As a certified professional career coach, I can help you see the hidden roots and explore the destinations that align with your values, interests, and skills. Let me show you how. Schedule your free 30-minute inquiry session at successinsciencecc.com. See you soon. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Diverse Roots. Never forget your career journey is as unique as you are. Stay true to your values and journey on. And know that you don't have to journey alone. If you're overwhelmed by career options or feel like your applications are getting overlooked, Success in Science Career Coaching is here to help. Schedule your free inquiry session today at successinsciencecc.com. Until next time, bye-bye.